0: Welcome to Kitchen Table Magic, a storytelling podcast featuring the amazing people of the Magic the Gathering community. I'm your host, Sam Tang. Join me and my guests as we share stories about what MTG means to us, how we got started playing Magic, the ups, the downs, the hilarious stories, and everything in between. In this episode, I'm speaking with Brian Weissman, former pro player known for his creation of The Deck. The deck focuses on an attrition plan to brutally control your opponent while swinging in with big creatures like Sarah Angel, Juggernaut, and Juzam Jin. Brian's innovations in deck tech blossomed into what we now know as the control archetype and the concept we know as card advantage. For a while, the deck was unbeatable and evolved to combat new threats like Necropotence. I sat down with Brian last fall. I hope you enjoy my interview with the legendary Brian Weissman. Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining me on Kitchen Table Magic. I'm your host, Sam Tang, and today I'm sitting down with a very special person, Brian Weissman. Brian, how are
1: you? I'm doing well, Sam. Thank you. And could you describe what uh, kitchen table are we on right now? We are literally on my kitchen table. It is a very humble kitchen table that doesn't see a great deal of use, but it still counts.
0: I love it. It's uh, a beautiful wood color and it's got a very nice (laughs) knocking sound to it. So, this is perfect. Brian, I have you here today to share with our listening audience a very special piece of magic history. I was speaking with Mark Rosewater. And at the end of our conversation, I said, Mark, who should I talk to? Who would be a good person for me to speak with for this podcast? And Mark kind of thought a little bit and was like, I know who, Brian Weissman. Do you know who that is? And I said, no I don't but this is really interesting if Mark Rosewater is the one calling you out and so I you know did a little bit of research and I realized that another very special person had mentioned your name before Chris Pacula Meddling Mage had also mentioned your name and then On that note as well, Brian David Marshall had also mentioned your name and Randy Bueller had also mentioned your name. So, a lot of people, um, big heavy hitters in the industry have been mentioning your name and I did some research and it seems like you are the creator of something called The Deck, appropriately named because it is a deck. Brian,
1: could you tell us what's in The Deck? I can actually. I can actually tell you why it's called The Deck too. Ah. I figure some people might be interested in hearing that little story. The original The Deck was co-created by a friend and roommate of mine, a guy named uh, Matt Wallace, who um, I met at UC Santa Cruz. And before I played competitive Magic, I was actually a competitive Street Fighter player. We met at a tournament playing Street Fighter. Mm -hmm. I had just been introduced to the game in early 1994 at a friend's birthday party and was immediately completely grabbed and hooked by it. And I had just a single starter deck that I had bought because cards were incredibly scarce back then and I also had no money. Mm -hmm. And I took the cards back and I said, I've got Show this to Matt. He's going to love it as well. So, we built two rough decks from the tiny pool of cards that I had at that time and started playing together and theorizing and working on stuff very quickly because of the approach that we took to deck design. We were really both very competitive people by nature. And while other people were sort of dabbling and playing with pet concepts and making cute decks based around, you know, stone giants throwing fire breathing walls and all sorts of garbage like that, <laughs> Matt and I were just fundamentally interested in winning. Over the period of maybe three to four months of experimentation and fundamentally beginning to understand that decks shouldn't be 250 cards and winnowing down our designs and fine tuning them and then eventually discovering how good blue was as a color, which was seems like a crazy idea now, but in a vacuum when before people really understood the color pie or the themes of the colors, it was really decks were kind of just a hodgepodge of whatever you'd throw together that appealed to you at the time. We did eventually discover that blue had something special going for it. We couldn't quite quantify, put our fingers on what that was, but it seemed like it won a lot more often than the other colors did. Hmm. That discovery kind of pushed us in the direction of building decks that were slower to develop, more control-oriented, and based around the idea of outdrawing the opponent. And we were kind of aided in that endeavor, too, by this just arbitrary decision that we made early on, which was we decided that as a house rule between Matt and me, that playing Magic with 20 life wasn't enough. Hmm. We just decided that the game feels like it's too fast-paced that you die too quickly when you play with 20 life. We should play with 40, huh? So all of our games in testing and when we were refining designs and un- beginning to really learn and understand the game at its core were games involving 40 life. And if you can imagine anybody that's played Commander, Elder Dragon Highlander, or any other heavy life format, it completely warps what's viable and what's not. Right. You look at creatures like Savannah Lions, which was sort of the consummate beater back in the day, along with Kurdape. They look terrible, assessed that way. When you have 40 life points, a Savannah line is effectively hitting you for one per turn, based on how the card is actually balanced. And so we immediately just dismissed and discarded all of the aggressive creatures in the game out of hand and started to build slow, controlish decks built around generating card advantage. So that period went on for a long time while we were at UC. Santa Cruz for, um, I think, up until mid-1994, somewhere around the summer of 1994. And by that point, we had refined our decks and refined the concept of playing control to the point where we had branched off into multiple colors and were playing at the – I think it was probably a four-color control deck by that point. The keystone, the sort of foundation of the deck though, were two cards that were unrestricted at the time, which one of them has actually been unrestricted again recently, although for many, many years it was banned and then eventually – was unbanned and now is unrestricted, but that's only because of the way that magic has changed. One card is still restricted and probably will be forever. And those two cards were Mind Twist and Libra of Alexandra. And kind of on the opposite end of the degenerate card advantage spectrum, obviously, the Library of Alexandria being a colorless land that says tap to draw a card if you have exactly seven cards in your hand, which, of course, you do at the start of the game. And this is long before the play draw rule existed. So, even if you went first, you would draw your first card for the turn, play Library of Alexandria, and be off to the races. Wow. Yeah, which is ridiculous, of course. And Mind Twist, a random... Discard spell, black and X. Target player discards X cards at random from their hand. That's insane. Which is insane, especially given the paradigm of the day which was that the decks were tended to be very slow to develop everything was very expensive and there was a great deal of fast mana but there weren't a lot of accessible counter spells unless you were playing devoted blue even the aggressive decks were slow they tended to start casting spells around the three two to three mana range they didn't run a lot of billion one drops and because there was so much fast mana in the form of the moxes the black lotus soul ring and so on if you had a lucky hand you could often just mind twist someone for four or five cards very early in the game and that would that would be the end our deck had four copies of Library of Alexandria and four copies of Mind Twist. And to accelerate that, it had four copies of Mana Vault also, which was a card that a lot of people had kind of dismissed because you you look at it and you say, man, this card does one damage to me every single upkeep unless I untap it. And based on the conventional wisdom of the day, taking damage was something you really didn't want to do. The idea of paying life for advantage was kind of unknown to a lot of people. It just seemed like you know, you'll see a lot of people that when they are first introduced to magic, they'll do everything they possibly can to avoid taking damage, even chump blocking creatures when they're at 18, hmm. because it's uncomfortable. It feels bad to take damage. And it takes some time to learn what becomes a very obvious skill once you really begin to understand magic, which is that your life total gives you position relative to the other player and gives you more choices, but it's not fundamentally that important. It certainly isn't indicative of how you're doing in the game. And that's a very commonplace idea, but was kind of unknown at the time. Mm-hmm. So, the deck that we ultimately built uh, and sort of finalized informally uh, was a deck that had four copies of Library of Alexandria, four Mind Twists, four Mana bolts, the five Moxes, Lotus and Soul Ring. And honestly, at that point, it didn't even matter what else because <laughs> that foundation was so powerful and so degenerate relative to what existed at the time that you could just win games starting on turn one going forward because you would either start with a Library of Alexandria or you'd start with six mana on turn two and mind twist their whole hand away. It was insane. And you and we had a, a splashing of creatures. We had a mixture of juggernauts and mahamodi Jinns, but again, it, it didn't really matter. You were playing just a pure raw card advantage deck. And so, the seminal tournament, the introductory tournament for this deck was a tournament called um, Manifest, which was hosted up in San Francisco. And Matt and I both really wanted to go to this tournament to test out our design because we had never, we had gotten to the point where people refused to play with us locally because the deck was just way too strong and oppressive, but uh, we hadn't tested it against a wider audience. The problem was, is that between Matt and me, we only owned, I think, five copies of Library of Alexandria. <laughs> okay. With no way to get more and no time. And so, we couldn't build two copies of this deck. So, ultimately, we just wound up rolling a die, a 20-sided die with the winner going to represent our brain trust and Matt, I think, rolled an 18 or something. So, I donated my two copies of of Library Alexandria and we had the four mind twists and stuff and we were thinking about what do we call this thing and I think Matt suggested, let's just call it the deck. There's nothing that's even close to that out there. I mean, this deck is so far ahead of the curve in terms of what people are playing right now. We know that we're just going to go to this tournament and route everyone. It's not even a question. Mm -hmm. And so, we decided to just call it the deck. And Matt went to manifest with the deck and as we expected, just steamrolled every person throughout the tournament, just cruised all the way to the finals. And in the finals, the guy that he played in the finals, and I actually learned who his opponent was many, many years later over a conversation at dinner with some Watsi employees. His opponent actually was a guy named Andrew Finch, who was, I believe, the director of organized play for a while. I, that may not be completely right, but Andrew was very close. I don't believe he's at Wizards anymore, but he was very closely tied to the company for a long time. For example, in the early days of the Pro Tour, Andrew was the guy at the microphone that called out the, uh, the drafting for booster draft and Rochester draft. He was the guy at the mic going, you know, open your booster, count the, count the <laughs> booster, that sort of thing. Andrew played against Matt in the finals and Andrew was playing a quite good, I imagine, land destruction deck. Three color, black, red, green, John land destruction deck long before John was a thing. He had been doing the same thing that Matt coming from the opposite end of the bracket. It was a big tournament. I think it was 256 people. Uh huh. And he had been steamrolling everybody as well. So, they sit down to play Matt versus Andrew. Matt looks at Andrew and says, well, you and I both know that you're going to crush me. You've been destroying everybody in the tournament. So, you should let me go first. And Andrew, for whatever reason, says, all right. Sure.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> and Matt proceeds to have a draw something like Tundra, Mox, Jet, soul Ring, Mana Vault, Mind Twist for six on turn one. Like he just Mind Twists Andrews almost his entire hand on the first turn of the game. And Mind Twist is random. So, that's even better. Yeah. Like he doesn't even have to, he can't even choose what he can. No, he can't, he can't even keep one land. Wow. Like you're, you're dead on the spot if that happens. To wow. You. Mind twist for six on turn one. Andrew draws his first card in the, for his turn and just says, go. <laughs> Matt's <laughs> second turn, he casts a juggernaut. Oh my God. Next turn, he casts another juggernaut and the game's over. Wow. Game two, obviously Andrew's figured things out. He's, and of course he gets to go first, right? I mean, I guess you always have the option, but he elects to go first that game. <laughs> And I think he sinkholes Matt's first land on starting on turn two and never looks back, just destroys every land that Matt plays. And in the third game, Matt opens with Mana Vault, Black Lotus, Land, Mox, Mind Twist for seven. Oh, my God. On turn Man. one in the finals. So, two of the three games, Matt kills Andrew on turn one with Mind Twist. Wow. And wins the tournament after that, obviously, because, you know you get mind twisted for seven in 1994 era magic, you don't come back. Ever. <laughs> There's <laughs> no way to come back. I mean, maybe if you have balance in your deck or if you Black Lotus off the top followed by Wheel of Fortune or something, but you basically don't come back. That was the debut of the deck. And from that point on, I always referred to it as that whenever I showed it to anyone, whenever I played it in a tournament. And then the name just became synonymous with that. And then Matt himself went on to, he, uh, this is in the very, very early days of the internet. So, ISPs were opening up, you know, the internet service providers the very early ones were opening for business in the Bay Area and Matt was very interested in going to work for one of those. So he went off, left Santa Cruz and went to go pursue that and really never played Magic again and I kind of ventured out on my own. The later the modern versions of it, and I say modern obviously in that context because they were designed in 1995. After Mind Twist was restricted, which happened I think in the summer after the summer of 1994, a guy named Bo Bell won US Nationals with a Mind Twist deck because you know, there was no other deck to really play that also had, I think it may have had Dark Ritual in addition to Mana Vaults, but whatever the case was, it had four Mind Twists. That card got restricted, library got restricted. And for a time, I was sort of looking around, trying other strategies, but I always kind of had the deck in the back of my head as far as how that deck played out and whether or not I could actually replicate that sort of thing again. And so, I started tinkering and trying lots of different things and eventually just found the card Disrupting Scepter. And I looked at Disrupting Scepter and said, wait a minute, this thing might be able to accomplish that same strategy, albeit much slower and in a grindy fashion. And what but, does Disrupting Scepter spectre- do? Yeah, it's funny. I, you probably were wondering what it does. <laughs> the very fact that you have to ask me what Disrupting Scepter <laughs> does goes to show you how antiquated it is as a card and the concept. I mean, it's so funny. There's a card that's similar to Disrupting Scepter, but on a totally astronomically higher power level called Muse Vessel. And you probably don't want to know what Muse Vessel does either. No, I don't. I play a budget version of EDH called 2DH, which was pioneered by a local player here. It stands for $2 Highlander, Mm -hmm. where every card in the deck excluding the commander has to cost $2 or less Mm -hmm. according to the recent MTG stocks price. It's very hard to adhere to because the prices fluctuate so much, and there's Mm -hmm. a lot of cards kind of right on the bubble. But one of the cards that's an all-star in my best deck, which is a blue-black control deck, is the card Muse Vessel which stack next to Disrupting Scepter. I mean, it just puts the Scepter to shame. Muse Vessel's a four-mana artifact, pay three mana and tap, target player exiles a card from their hand. And once that card is exiled, you can pay one mana and play the card exiled by Muse Vessel. So it can be a land, it can be any spell in their hand, whatever the case is. They have to effectively discard a card a turn, but now you have access to that card in the same way that Praetor's Grasp works. Are yes. you familiar with that card? Mm-hmm. So, Praetor's Grasp says, but only you take it out of their deck, right? Right. This is actually from their hand, and you have to pay one mana to play the card, but you can play it at any time. It doesn't have to be until end of turn or anything. So, the cards just basically sit on the Muse Vessel waiting to be played. And if the Muse Vessel gets destroyed, they don't get the cards back or anything. They're gone. hmm So, it's two-directional card advantage in the sense that, you know, you basically play cards out of their hand, albeit slowly. Now, compared to Muse Vessel, Disrupting Scepter is a piece of garbage <laughs> in the same exact activation cost, only Disrupting Scepter just causes them to discard the card, which in many cases nowadays would be disastrous because of flashback and recursion and reanimation and all the things that exist now. Mm-hmm. Back in the day, though, there really wasn't a great deal of consequence. Animate Dead existed in a little later... Uh, Dance of the Dead existed, but there weren't really very many bring creatures from the graveyard effects. And, and honestly, there weren't any creatures worth reanimating because the creatures <laughs> yeah. were terrible. Yeah, I mean, They didn't design good creatures in magic for more than a decade after the game came out. That said, the scepter was three to cast, three mana and tap. Target player discards a card from their hand. And you have to play this ability as a sorcery. That, of course, prevents you from sceptering them during their draw step, for example. At least they figure that part of the card out. <laughs> but it's so bad. Six mana to make someone discard one card, given the options that exist now. It seems so bad in context, you know, relative to anything that exists now. The fact is Muse Vessel costs one more mana to cast, but the same amount of mana to to use has a way more powerful effect and never, ever, ever saw play in any format ever. Huh. Except in my budget 2DH deck where I crush (laughs) people with it all the time. (laughs) But the thing is, um, it was the cornerstone of how control worked for a long time, for multiple years. And eventually, and people have discovered this in the old the old school MTG format, which has gained a lot of popularity. it's often called 93/94 magic. Randy, I'm sure mentioned it in his interview. Yeah, And um, there are enclaves of people playing that all over the world now, and it's causing the prices of beta cards from that era to skyrocket. Wow, best example I can think of is disrupting scepter itself. Because um, a year ago, year and a half ago, maybe, right before Randy hosted, I think he hosted and won that tournament, you could get a beta disrupting scepter for like 30 to $40. Mm-hmm. It was one of, it was kind of in the trash bin rares from beta. Valuable because it was a beta card, but not valuable because it was good. Right. And it's now 350 to 400 Wow. Even in modest condition, a really good condition one is probably $500. Wow. So, you can see insane, insane increase in price, like a tenfold increase in price or more. Because of the growth and popularity of this format, but it's also a testament to how good that card still is. Wow! And Randy played, I think, two of them in his deck, and I don't know how often he sideboarded them out. The format is certainly different, and for reasons that I can I can go into, into, into detail, and I've already told you about. But at its time, the scepter was how control decks won. You would play the scepter early, often off of a mana drain, and mana drain is the most psychotic, insane counterspell ever created. Yeah. People rave about Force of Will and Force of Will is very powerful and very format-defining in its own right. But in terms of raw power, Mana Drain is miles beyond Force of Will and I'm happy to argue that point with anyone. Mm-hmm. Force of Will is a tool and Mana Drain is not only a tool but it is a, it is a means and an enabler of an entire archetype. It allowed control decks to be proactive in a way that no card ever has before or since. The fact that you could often drain an early spell, like a three mana spell, like a Stone Rain or a Serendipaffreed or an Ice Storm or whatever they happen to play, and cast a Disrupting Scepter for three and then start or for free, I should say, and start eating into their hand with it. There were so few outlets to draw cards back then, outside of the restricted list. So, Time Walk, I'm sorry, not Time Walk, uh, Ancestral Recall, and Time Twister and Wheel of Fortune. There really weren't very many ways for decks to draw cards. So, if you were eating a card out of their hand for three mana every single turn in very short order they would have no cards in their hand mm-hmm. and anyone who's ever played a control deck knows how it feels. It's more than just a strategic thing. You get a different feeling when you're playing with counter spells and your opponent has no cards in their hand versus say two or three Right. in terms of how it affects your decision process. When someone has six mana in play and they cast something for two mana and you have a counterspell, it's a very difficult decision about whether or not to counter it even if it has immediate impact on the game. If that opponent has no cards in hand and you have two counter spells in your hand. You know it, that there's no follow up. There's nothing else that they can do. And you ha- can make a perfect decision about whether or not to counter. And the scepter allows you to do that. It allows you to winnow their hand down to nothing and make perfect decisions every single turn about whether or not you can counter something because there's no surprise follow-up that's coming afterward. Mm -hmm. That's the hardest thing. One of the hardest things with permission with control decks in general is developing that instinct, being able to understand when and when not to counter. And you asked earlier about when people have contacted me with questions about decks and stuff. And another thing I'm very frequently asked, people ask me questions about, well, I see you play and post all these control decks how the hell do you play them? How do you know when to counter stuff? It seems like it's such an enigma. I can't figure out what I'm supposed to counter and how do you know? How do you seem to know and be able to make the right decision so frequently? And that's a multi-part question. It's not something that I can just come up with a very simple few word answer for. And it's, it's also the result of instincts honed from literally tens of thousands of hours spent playing control decks over the years. But the decision gets a lot easier if they have no cards in their hand. And almost all the good control decks that I've played over the years have that as an aim in one direction or another, either through discard or through just drawing so many more cards that you exhaust all their resources. If you're out drawing your opponent by a card per turn or three cards to their two or four cards to their two or whatever, in a short amount of time, provided you're answering their threats one for one and preventing them from drawing extra cards, eventually, they're going to have no cards in your hand and you're going to be able to make perfect decisions with your counterspells.
0: This is fascinating because we're talking about the history of magic from a very fundamental way this game has been played. Obviously, we know that the design and development of the game has changed a great deal in the last 20 odd years, but back in the day, it was all about efficient use of mana, and then also how to value resources that your opponent was putting down. And of course, some spells were more powerful back then, so you can make the argument that as a player and as a deck, you had more access to powerful spells, but so did your opponent. The impact of like that one for one. You know, we always talk about getting the maximum value out of your deck and, and out of your cards, specifically trying to get go for two for ones and go for one for ones. Mind Twister was a one for a six for one or a seven for one other times. And, yeah. and that's really crazy. Brian, could you share with us what is in the deck?
1: Yes, I absolutely can. Um, there's, there are many incarnations of this deck uh, over the years, starting with the very first versions that found their way online. I was loath to share my technology in the early days. So, the first versions that were published were woefully inaccurate. Usually, someone would be sitting over my shoulder and taking notes while <laughs> I was engr- engrossed in a game and trying to kind of piece it together. Before the World Wide Web existed, before there was websites like the Magic Dojo and so on, people used a resource called the Usenet, rec.games.deckmaster.tradingcards.mtg is I think what it was called, and disseminate spread information about the game through that channel. And a fair amount of people playing the game and actively posting on Usenet lived in the Silicon Valley because it was kind of a nexus of technology. And so more people had access to the internet there. A lot of those people were attending tournaments and talking to me and watching games of this played. And I did share my exact build with a couple of close friends who played clones of it often with a couple of small adjustments, but played it in their, in their local enclaves, played it in tournaments, traveled around and so on. So it started to spread around that way, but people were publishing versions of it online. I would see these versions and I would say, no, it doesn't have, you know, whatever card. And I'm not playing with birds of paradise in my deck. Are you crazy? You know, I'm not playing with Juzam Jins. I'm not playing with whatever. Like it was, to me, it was like offensive that someone would go and take my design and adulterate it in one way or another and publish it online and say that it was the real design. So, okay, so this is the version of the deck circa 1996, which was, I think this was the version that I played at a type one tournament that was hosted at Origins that year at the Pro Tour. And the version that I played was this. um, Four City of Brass, four Basic Island, one Library of Alexandria, three Basic Plains, Three strip mines, four tundras, and two volcanic islands. Those are the lands, and I think that's a total of twenty-one, which was pretty much the unwavering amount of land that I played. And it's very funny because you think about vintage decks nowadays and they have something like ten or twelve lands in them usually. People do everything they possibly can to avoid playing land, because land's terrible. And there's no reason to play lands when half your spells are free and or cost one or two. But it was a different era, of course. So 21 land made a lot of sense, and I'll probably be able to get into that, why that is later. As for the spells, uh, the artifacts in the deck were a single black lotus, five moxes, a soul ring, a copy of the card Mirror Universe, which absolutely amazing card, made much stronger by the rule set that existed back then. The rules are slightly different now than they were back in 1996, but they are different in some very fundamentally important ways. And one of those ways was the reason why Mirror Universe was unbelievably powerful. I can talk about that later. Um two disrupting scepters and one jammed a tome, and I've already talked about why the scepter was so good and why I used it. Its counterpart was the jammed a tome, and there's a lot of debate, most likely to this day, about what the proper balance is of tomes and scepters. They do kind of the same thing, but one draws you cards and one causes discard. Jammed a tome, however, costs four mana to cast, so it's more expensive. At the same time, you can spend the mana at any time, so you can draw the card on their turn. You don't have to commit three on your turn, which is a very big deal, of course. And I opted to play with two Scepters, one Tome because I felt that the way that the games tend to unfold, especially in the mirror match, the Scepters were more powerful and allowed you to just, they allowed you to make those perfect decisions with counterspells. They allowed you to nullify a lot of your opponent's counterspells. If you were able to catch them with few cards in hand, get them down to zero, they could draw counterspells all day long and never play any of them because you had one Scepter out. The deck had two creatures and two creatures only. It had two Sarah Angels and the Sarah Angel by today's standards in the era of, well, it's not even the era of Baneslayer Angel anymore. I guess that's been probably trumped by other things now. I guess Baneslayer Angel probably sees play in some formats. The idea that Baneslayer Angel is not even a particularly expensive card and was used, I guess, quite a bit when it was a contemporary card, but in the grand scheme of things is still outmoded. A 5-mana five 5-5 five five with first strike and lifelink and pro demons and dragons. That thing is so much better than Sarah Angel, which is just a 4-4 flyer for five mana with Vigilance, and that's it. And if you compare that card to Archangel Avicen, for example, which is plummeting in value and again, hasn't really seen play either. Archangel Avicen has basically four abilities to Sarah Angel's one. But at the time, again, because Sarah Angel had four toughness, which meant it was immune to Chain Lightning and Lightning Bolt, so Psionic Blast could kill it, but the two best Efficient red removal spells could not kill it. Incinerate, which came in Ice Age not much later, also couldn't kill it. And it, the fact that it had vigilance was extremely important because it allowed you to close the game out with damage while also blocking, which actually mattered. <laughs> The deck ran just two enchantments, which were two copies of the card Moat, a really, really powerful enchantment from Legends, which completely transformed how aggressive decks had to build their... How they had to be built, how they had to... You basically could not run an aggressive deck if you couldn't deal with enchantments because you would just lose on the spot to Moat. And I remember beating literally hundreds of red decks, red-based decks with Moat, just single Moats, until they printed the card Anarchy, which helped a little bit with it. Once you had a Moat in play, if the only way that they could possibly hurt you with creatures was by drawing their anarchy, which I think costs four or five mana. It was trivial to win the game at that point. Moat is so incredibly powerful and was absolutely defining in terms of how people had to play it. That's another reason also, of course, why we didn't use Mishra's factories back in the day too. And that was another reason why Mishra's factories were much worse. Obviously you're playing a control deck, you're either running Moat or you're running something that attacks on the ground. It makes no sense to run four colorless land and Moat at the same time. And Moat was just a universal answer to everything. The deck's instants were Ancestral Recall, the most powerful card in all of Magic, two Counterspells, four copies of Mana Drain, two main deck Red Elemental Blasts, which were just obviously a complete metagame call against the best decks you expected to face in the format. And they had the advantage that even if you were playing against a deck that wasn't blue by its nature, Ancestral Recall and Time Walk and Time Twister were so ubiquitous that you would pretty much always have a target with your Red Blast if their deck presented any type of threat at all. If they weren't playing with Ancestral Recall and Time Walk, and obviously the dual lands to run those, their deck was probably in a lower tier and you weren't really worried about losing to them anyway. So that was the idea behind it. You could always sideboard them out. And then finally, uh, four disenchants and four swords to plowshares, which are solid staples that were mandatory at the time. You had to be able to destroy your opponent's tomes and their scepters. You had to be able to destroy moxes and the soul ring. You had to be able to swords to plowshares early creatures as obligatory. And then the sorceries in the deck were demonic tutor, obviously, universally powerful restricted card. Uh, one copy of Brain Geyser, the best card drawing spell that existed at the time, which again is a, a card that's totally dismissed and has been reprinted in 18 different forms over the years. But uh, in its day, Brain Geyser was a power card. I regarded it as one of the power cards. In fact, people say the power and they refer to nine particular cards that includes Time Twister. But Brain Geyser and um, Recall, actually, a legend sorcery, were both More powerful than Time Twister most of the time and should have been considered the power cards. It's just that they got reprinted, so it didn't count. Um, But Time Twister, Time Walk, and Regrowth, uh, three other sorceries that were all restricted. And then finally, Recall from Legends, which was a very, very powerful recursion tool that allowed you to sometimes take as many as five turns in a row because you could take your turn, cast Time Walk on your turn, regrow the Time Walk to take a third turn, then cast Recall to regrow the Time Walk and the Regrowth. And then cast them two more times. So you could take five turns in a row. And five turns plus a Sarah Angel is 20. Then the uh, sideboard of the deck, it had two more copies of Red Elemental Blast. It had two copies of Circle of Protection Red, because burn decks were pretty common. Um, It had two copies of the card Dust to Dust, which was a super powerful metagame call, because often the ability to gain an advantage in the artifact war, especially if you could... Dust to dust. And it was exile too. So if you could dust a tome and a scepter out of the game from your opponent, you would just win on the spot because they have no tools to control the game anymore. Um, it had a copy of Zeron Orb because Ice Age had just come out and it was the best life gain card. It had a copy of Balance, which was restricted, I believe at the time. I think it had just been restricted. It was restricted right around 1996 and, um, or maybe late in 96. But Balance was just a tool to deal basically with hand destruction, discard decks and land destruction too. A copy of Tormod's Crypt, which was just there, not not because of graveyard reanimation, but simply as a mirror match card, oddly enough, because the games would be so long and grindy that you would often win through deck attrition. And to that end, the deck played a copy of Feldon's Cane. Awful, awful artifact. <laughs> I mean, they basically they printed a copy of Feldon's Cane called Elixir of Immortality that gains you four life and is still one of the most garbagey cards ever created. But Feldon's Cane was still good because again, the mirror match was what you played a big majority of the time. To that end, it also played a copy. And I actually forgot to mention this. I skipped it. Um, a copy of the card Amnesia, both in the main deck and one in the sideboard. And Amnesia is a deck, a card that I play all the time in EDH. And almost every time I play it against someone, they have to read it, But it, which is very funny to me because that card was the cornerstone of how you won in an instant once Mind Twist was banned. Um, Mind Twist was banned... I want to say late 1996, early 1997. And uh, my name is actually attached to that banning. I launched a very vocal internet campaign to get that card banned because once type two rolled around as a format and everybody started to play that, you could still play with dark rituals. You could play with four copies of dark ritual and everyone was playing mono black because necropotence had been discovered. And every deck had four copies of him to Turok and, and mind twist and four dark rituals and specters. And, for strip mines as well. And type two had just devolved into this ridiculous, make your opponent discard their their hand and strip away all their lands in the first couple turns. And one person was just doing that every game. And obviously you had necropotence as the backbone to fuel that whole strategy. So in the context of type two and how ridiculous and stupid mind twist was in that format, I launched this internet campaign to get it banned. And it was banned from type two and then also banned from type one. So we, as a replacement for that, and it was... It was a very sort of Machiavellian self-serving banning because I was playing a mono blue deck and I knew that there was a card out there that I could use in my own deck because I played with so many blue sources to still effectively replicate that effect, which was the card Amnesia. And Amnesia costs three colorless mana and three blue. And it says, I think you look at target players. Yeah, I think it's target player. It's either target player or opponent. Either way, target player reveals their hand and discards all non-land cards from their hand. So it's six mana which is a ton of mana at the same time you remove all spells from their hand nothing nothing but lands if you get hit by amnesia early in the game you probably lose and certainly if you get hit late game when you've played most of your lands it's definitely game over and so a lot of the control and control matchups once mind twist was banned turned into these long stalemates where you would sit there and you would just play land after land after land sitting on a ton of mana drains and that brings me to another key component in the sideboard which is two copies of the card, Mana Short. And when Randy Bueller published the deck list for his 93-94 Magic List that he he won his first inaugural tournament with, I pointed that out, I think in the comments, as a glaring omission. He wasn't using Mirror Universe, which kind of made sense, but should have still been in there, at least in the sideboard. But his big omission was not using Mana Short. Mana Short was so insane. And the card is another card that most people probably don't know what it does, you among them perhaps. (laughs) It's a blue instant, costs two colorless, one blue, and it says target player, the person targeted by mana short, taps all their land and empties their mana pool. So seems kind of gimmicky and dumb, but when the entire game comes down to both players just sitting there and doing nothing but playing lands for 10 turns, waiting for someone to breathe or waiting for someone to blink, mana short wins you the game all by itself. The idea being that you set up a hand with amnesia that you've sideboarded it in and multiple counter spells. And all you want to do is, all you need to do is resolve the amnesia to win the game. You just sit there and at the end of whatever turn, when you finally set it up, you just cast mana short on them. And that allows you to fight the counter, effectively fight the counter war over the game ending amnesia on their end step because they have to defend it. There's no force of will yet. There's no way to defend your hand. So they have to fight the counter war over the mana short. If they lose the counter war and even if they don't lose it, it doesn't matter because if Let's say they win it after three counterspells go off. Well, they're down to just two land anyway. And you untap, strip mine away one of the lands, amnesia them, game over. So that was the last card in the sideboard, two copies of Mana Short.
0: That's fascinating. And Brian, having you share the deck with us and also with the listeners, I wanted kind of like the gravitas of what this technology is and how it starts to sink in. If you could, Brian, in just maybe one or two short sentences, what is the quintessential game plan of someone piloting
1: the deck? Okay, well, that's very easy to describe, actually. The fundamental game plan is run your opponent's hand out of cards and kill them with a single threat. Exhaust their resources, usually cards in hand, get so far ahead with your own resources and deploy either a single Sarah Angel or the Mirror Universe and kill them within a couple of turns while they're effectively helpless because they're drawing only one card per turn, you have two or three counter spells in your hand. So, even if through some miracle, they manage to draw two or three consecutive solutions to the board state, you still have counter spells for each one of them and they have no way to back it up because they only have one card and you win the game from that point.
0: And from a theoretical perspective, that sounds a lot like modern Jund to me, right? I mean, we don't have counterspells per se, but you have Inquisition, you have Thoughtseize, you're making people discard. You've got Liliana the Veil and you're swinging in with one big threat, a Tarmogoyf or modern Grixis, right? You've got Tasikur, you've got Kermag Angler, you've got something large or uh, Jeskai Control. Um, you've got Geist of St. Traff, you've got uh, counter spells like Crypto Command, and you've got Snapcaster Mage to control things, and you've also got Celestial Colonnade. It just reminds me of all these mid-range
1: decks that are kind of 50-50. They're good against everything. Yeah, I would say that the fundamental philosophy is exactly the same. and certainly. Along the lines of that duality between the JMD Tome and the Disrupting Scepter, that duality is played out in a lot of modern designs. You said that you're not playing blue, you're not playing Counter spells, So, in place of that, you have control cards in the form of Thoughtseize, Inquisition of Kozilek in the past, Duress, and so on. And I'm sure there'll be more cards like that in the future. Right. But yeah, anything to create that game state where you have sculpted a board state of relative parity, but removed all of your opponent's options to interdict whatever you're trying to kill them with with one single thing and they have this tiny little narrow window to answer that one thing and only drawing one card a turn being reduced to top decking statistically your chances of getting out of that situation are extremely low blue is just able to do it best in the past because you have actual hard counters you have hard permission they can't even top deck miracle answers because you do have counter spells Black, you can make them discard their hand, but they are still always living off the top of their deck. And sometimes there is there is a miracle waiting on top of your deck to get you out of it. But philosophically, it's the same design. And I've actually, I am um, getting back not to harp on EDH again, it's just sort of my, my pet format. And I played and approached the format almost entirely as a very spike oriented 1v1 format, primarily because my entire introduction to it was playing it on magic online, and in that format, there are the, you do have the ability to play multiplayer, but their games are very it takes a long time for the games to fire. You can be waiting in a queue for an hour before sometimes before uh, a game will fire. However, that dynamic is really, really heavily populated. You can get games at any time of the day mm-hmm. almost instantly. there's tons and tons of opponents. It's a very healthy environment. So that was my entire EDH paradigm building one V1 focused decks from the very beginning, and no matter what color I was playing and I've played well, all five colors amongst my generals in EDH, although I don't think I've ever played a mono white general, maybe not even mono red, but I played (laughs) mono black, mono black and mono green, and I've played every permutation of blue there is, of course, including mono blue. But every deck, including the mono black and interestingly enough, the mono green decks, those are all control decks based around these same exact principles that apply to my old 20 year old plus five color control deck. The principles themselves are still always the same because I think at its core, at least it's changed a lot. It's been informed a lot by advanced design, by the progression of design and magic and and such. There's so many brilliant, absolutely brilliant senior experienced designers building magic nowadays. Every time a new set comes out, everybody has to go back to the drawing board, reevaluate. Is control viable now? Have they given us enough tools? Are creatures viable now? And that's constantly changing. Like I was I was blown away. I watched the finals of uh, Worlds this year at PAX. I was watching it live. And unlike last year where it was an Abzan mirror, it was Bant versus Bant. And when you think about the way that Bant normally is, it's creatures. Obviously, it's a very creature-based strategy, but you have to play in order to have a mid to long range game, you have to play across kind of the spectrum of tools that are available. Certainly, that's how you had to play the game historically. And Going back in time, you had to make, if you were playing a deck with creatures, which was a very tough, a big ask, honestly, you had to justify why the creatures were in the deck because if you were playing with creatures, you were playing with them at the expense of things that actually let you win the game first. Mm -hmm. The creatures were a way of closing the game, but they were not the means that you went about winning the game with. They were the closers. They put pressure on your opponent, but they didn't really do anything in and of themselves. It was very, very hard to want to include creatures in your deck because there were so many more attractive things that you could get in spells. And watching this finals match, these two decks play against each other, and they're like seven card hands the whole freaking time while playing creatures every single turn. Like every creature they played had card advantage tools built into it. They just roll them into the creatures now. You don't need to play with Sylvan Library and Ancestral Visions and Concentrate and any number of whatever tools you might have thirst for knowledge ways that draw you cards to get you ahead because the creatures do it themselves you've got this creature in play that's an efficient beater it's a bear for two mana and it also happens to allow you to like look at the top three cards and take a creature from the top of your deck and put it in your hand every single turn and then of course the planeswalkers also do that there's just so many tools that are available but the game works like it's still fun there are still control strategies that work it isn't just entirely insano creatures that are way ahead of the curve. But that's that paradigm, that the way the game is designed is so different from the way that it was when we first started to play. Because anybody that could really assess the cards in the game objectively, that could step outside of themselves and say, well, I really love casting black creatures, or I really love you know casting huge green monsters. Anyone that could step outside of that would have to objectively look at the game and say, it is absurd to even try to play creatures in this game. They are so terrible. When the solutions to creatures cost two mana and one mana, and the creatures themselves to have any impact on the game cost four and five and six mana, there's just no reason you could ever justify doing it. And not only that, because of mana drain, if you're trying to cast a four mana creature like a Jazam or an Urnum Jinn or something, and your opponent has mana drain, well, you've not only had your creature countered and effectively destroyed, but you've lost the game because you gave your opponent four extra mana on their next turn, and they just bring Geyser for six or something (laughs) off of it.
0: It's very interesting because we often talk to uh, different people, uh, players in the game, and everyone has a, a phase of their lives and their histories with the game in which they really enjoyed playing Magic. And the funny thing was that you were reading off uh, the deck list for the deck and it had uh, four mainboard disenchants and the lands were like around like 21 or something like yeah, that. That's right. When I first started learning how to play Magic, the down and dirty version was 20 lands, 40 cards, four of those 40 cards had to have been a disenchant. Really? <laughs> yes. And it was just like your mainboarding disenchant and I didn't understand why and then I would and until I, I played a couple games and built decks on my own and learned that when I didn't do that, there would be some random circle of protection something that would completely destroy me or a howling mind that would completely destroy me and I'm just like oh right and We often joke now to the state of deck building in standard, modern era standard, and and modern even. Lands are 24 minimum, 25, 26 sometimes for a control deck, 27 if you're really wanting to push it. Cards that destroy enchantments and artifacts are exclusively for the sideboard. It never has a 4 of and always as a 2 of. It's really fascinating. And many guests that I've spoken to previously have been also talking about how they lament the death of control. They lament the death of spells. Everything is now rolled into a creature. You yeah. don't get Swords to Plowshares anymore. You get Siege Rhino. <laughs> you get Thrag Tusk, you know, and you don't get Counterspell anymore. I mean, we don't even get Cancel anymore, which is like a terrible version of Counterspell. You get Spell Queller. <laughs> you yeah, know,
1: it's, it is very interesting. I think a big part of that is because you need to define the game by something. I think certainly in terms of player acquisition. I know that player acquisition is always a big ongoing... For any game to be successful, you always have to be continuously growing. And Magic has been unbelievably successful, not only historically as a game, but I think in the last five, six, seven years in terms of its growth. And I think a big part of that, of course, is its spread as a people being able to play it on console. Like It was able to... finally got versions of the game that brought it out of, off the tabletop, that brought it off of the Magic Online client and made it far more accessible and got people to actually play it for the first time. That being said, I know that I've taught magic to lots of people in the past. I'm in the process of teaching it to my six and three quarter year old right now. It's very easy to teach the game to people, I think, when you can make it about something in particular, when you can take it out of the abstract and make it about concrete things. And creatures are the quintessential concrete thing in magic. They make the most sense to players. Right. And I think that it Make sense to roll more powerful and effective design into creatures as a way of, I guess, shepherding the game to an ever-growing audience. And not just that too, but conversely, if you're making creatures good, then you need to make the cards that deal with creatures worse. By extension, it, it it's all well and good to make amazing creatures, but if you also print incredibly awesome, efficient answers to those creatures, people are still not going to use them. That's right, especially because because of the way the game is structured. If you just make awesome sweepers, for example, you know you make cards like well, Toxic Deluge is a really good example. I mean, Toxic Deluge is that's a, a three mana sorcery that has unbelievable impact on edh i keep using as an example but (laughs) but uh three mana sorcery two colors one black pay x life all creatures in play lose minus x minus x until end of turn it is such a compact powerful sweeper that bypasses all protection all regeneration indestructibility everything it's just a hard kill everything in play card for three which is super cheap can be cast super early can be cast with counter magic backup it's just it's a very format warping card. And if they print lots of cards like Toxic Deluge, no one's going to play creatures no matter how good they get. They have to rein that back. And it's the same thing for Counterspells too. Counterspells are, it's a sore spot for a lot of players. Even people who have been playing the game for decades. There are people who just refuse to play with Counterspells, refuse to play against them, consider them to be unsportsmanlike have an entire range of visceral reactions to the concept of counterspells in general because they feel like using counters is somehow unfair, unsportsmanlike, prevents your opponent from actually playing a game of magic. And so, you've seen counterspell power level just walked back steadily.
0: Oh my, and not just walked back steadily, like we don't even get cancelled anymore.
1: (laughs) (laughs) The the fact that a three-mana vanilla hard counter... Is you know on the fence in terms of effectiveness? Yeah, it's not even appearing in basic sets anymore and stuff. And I'm sure that there will be. I mean, they have printed a few good three mana counters that are clearly superior to cancel recently. Uh, most the one I can think of most recently is Void Shatter and Dissolve, are both recent printings. Correct. And I know this because they they go in the three counter magic slot and EDH Blue decks <laughs> in some of them, of course. By and large, three mana counters are still a very dubious proposition to put in a deck. (laughs) Dubious? They are because the way that creatures are and the creatures themselves draw you cards, your opponent can have four power worth of creatures that have built-in card advantage in play before you can even cast your first counterspell. That's a really tough decision about whether or not to even include three mana counterspells in a deck, much less how many. Because if your opponent goes first and they play a two drop... And like, it's that two drop that can become a four five if they have five or six lands in play or whatever. It's a ridiculous creature. Sylvan it's, Advocate. Yeah, it's a two, three for two, which is already above the curve. Vigilance. Has Vigilance. Oh, and it turns into an Urnum Jinn with Vigilance. It if pumps I, itself and it pumps
0: all land creatures oh, that's too. that's right.
1: Yes, it does that too. So, so it your turns manlands, on Misha's Factory. Yeah, <laughs> your man lands become huge as well. Yeah. That's kind of a lot of value for a two drop that gets in before your opponent has the ability to counterspell. And then it's followed up by that, by the tracker, for example, the three, two thing that becomes like a five, four nightmarish thing that draws extra cards. Like it's totally insane also. That's right. Before you even cast your first counterspell. Yep. Now you're taking six a turn or whatever from their first two plays and yeah. drawing three mana counterspells that do nothing.
0: Yeah. Your void shadow does nothing. Right. So that. in that
1: situation, you can't justify putting counter magic in the deck. That's right. And I really wonder at some point in time, I need to talk with Mark about this uh, next time I see him. <laughs> We're talking about Mark Rosewater. Yeah, Mark Rosewater. <laughs> but um, about whether it might come full circle a little bit, whether or not counterspells might get some more love down the road because I mean they have printed some good ones but they're very niche like swan song is an example of that swan song is a very very amazing counter spell it's very powerful it allows you to force through spells of your own allows you to win counter wars very cheaply and it stops enchantments right it has (laughs) it has an a narrow range of uses. That said, giving your opponent a 2-2 flyer can be very impactful if you're playing in a 20-life format.
0: <laughs> Speaking of swan song, you know what I would rather have instead of swan song? A 3-3 three, three bird token. <laughs> or a 2-2 two 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 bird, bird token? I, I'd
1: rather for one blue have a 2-2 two, two bird token than a yeah, swan song. Yeah, you probably song. would, right? Than a swan song. <laughs> um, but it'd be interesting to find. I, I, think the, I think the conclusion probably in design, and obviously I can't speak for R&D. But I think the conclusion, at least among a lot of players, is that counterspells are fundamentally an unfun mechanic, as is like land destruction, for example. Certainly, mass land destruction is considered to be unfun. And when you're marketing a game, creating a game for an extremely wide audience, creating very powerful, obvious, efficient cards that feel like they're not fun and that feel unfair is bad for the game in general. Mm -hmm. So, I think that... In addition to the philosophically, mechanically understanding how to design cards better, I think that's another thing that's really informing the lack of really awesome removal and the lack of really good counterspells.
0: Brian, you said something very interesting just now. You said, you know, when will it come full circle, right? Because we're talking about the 2-2 bear, Sylvan Advocate, that's a 2-3, has vigilance, pumps itself, pumps man lands. Well, then when are we going to get the one drop... 2-2 two, two, that when it comes into the battlefield, exile target creature.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, that's, well, you wonder about yeah, exactly right? when, is the, when does the slippery slope end? Right. I mean, there is, there is a great deal of sanity and restraint and caution among the designers. And I think uh, with the occasion of a few mistakes that slip through, I, I mentioned Skullclamp and Jitte before as being cards that were… Mm-hmm. Er- erroneous in their design, but not because they were tested that way, but because that they were altered at the very, mm-hmm. at the very, very end. I think after the testing process, altered at the last second, and, yeah. ma- and made degenerate by accident, almost. What made them so degenerate? Based on my understanding of this, and again, this is anecdotal. Skull clamp, after going through numerous iterations, eventually was settled as being a plus one plus zero equipment. Huh. That's what it did in addition to drawing two cards when the creature was destroyed. And there was some concern that it had too much upside. And so at the very last minute after playtesting, they decided to give it a downside, which was to give it negative toughness. Switch to plus one, minus one. But isn't that minus one the huge upside? Exactly 100%, right? It transforms the card from being powerful, but not particularly unlike that card. um, There's a one mana artifact and you play it or equipment, and when you attack with a creature and if the creature is blocked, you draw two. I don't recall uh, the name of it off the top of my head, but... It's like
0: Infiltrator's Lens or something? That's it, actually. Oh, that was it? Yeah. (laughs) So Skull
1: Clamp and Infiltrator Lens are kind of similar, although obviously the Skull Clamp is better because it works on defense, and if you have ways of sacking your own creatures, then you get to draw cards off of them. It's an excellent card, but not completely bullshit insane, (laughs) which (laughs) is what Skull Clamp wound up being because that little tiny innocuous minus one toughness turned it into a completely insane ban-worthy card that completely defines every format that it's ever existed in. And to this day is a top tier card in all the formats that it's still played in. It's ridiculous. Jitte, on the other hand, had two of its original abilities. It had the remove counters to give the equipped creature plus two, plus two. Mm -hmm. It had remove counters to give the creature or to gain two life. Right. The life gain. It had life gain. And there was belief kind of panic at the last second this is too good. This generates too much mana. It may have been remove a counter to add one black mana to your mana pool. But either way, it would build up counters relatively quickly on offense and defense and you'd suddenly have access to an inordinate amount of mana for free.
0: It would be like Dark
1: Ritual all over again. Exactly. I mean, through an, in a roundabout way through equipment, but it, it could lead to degenerate states. So, to balance it at the very last minute after testing, they decided to go and give it a kind of black theme, which is remove a counter from it to give a creature minus one, minus one which in fact is what made the card completely insane. Because a single Jitte on a board state with creatures, either in limited or constructed or anything, completely wins you the game by itself. Right. The card is so utterly ridiculous. The fact that you can have it equipped on one creature attack, they can't really deal with it on offense or defense. It doesn't even have the restriction of dealing damage to a player. So, you can hit their Planeswalker with it and still get counters. The creature can fight in combat and still get counters. It can hit the opposing player and get counters. It puts your opponent into the situation where they're completely damned if they do and damned if they don't. If they block, they lose their guy to the counters. (laughs) If they don't block, they lose two guys to the counters. I mean, it's totally absurd. And, of course, the counters, That once it's started to wind up, now you can pump the attacker so that they can no longer beat it in combat. In addition to shrinking the other guys, it bypasses regeneration. It bypasses indestructible. It bypasses color protection. It just does everything. And it gains you life. It's completely (laughs) ridiculous.
0: And it gains you life. But
1: without that ability, if it were, it would just be exceptional if it didn't have that ability that was tacked on at the very last moment. And that elevated into the stratosphere and made it one of the most ridiculous cards that exists. Like I have a a legacy cube that I've built. I'm I'm not sure if you're familiar with the cube Mm -hmm. singleton draft format that has a lot of very powerful cards, including... Lots of the all-stars from the game's history and all the revised dual lands and fetch lands and lots of amazing cards like treachery and stuff like that. But I, at no point in time would I ever even consider putting Umazawa's Skull Skullclamp into my cube because those (laughs) cards are just completely on a different level. Especially when you're dealing with creatures, they just are on such a different power level that they're clearly mistakes and mistakes by this last second tinkering that obviously never should have happened.
0: Brian, can you tell us about when you first started playing
1: Magic competitively, like way back in the day? I think, honestly, I was a competitive player of the game from the moment I started. Mm -hmm. The very first game of Magic I ever played was on the kitchen table at my friend's house on January 17th, 1994. My friend had bought two starter decks for another friend of mine for his birthday and had brought his own cards as well. My friend sat in a circle on the floor on his floor in his bedroom playing this game while Mm -hmm. I kind of stood by the side reading comics and kind of asking them what they were doing from time to time. Mm -hmm. But that went on for an hour and then it went on for two hours. And after two hours, I kind of figured, well, it looks like we're not going to be doing anything outside. I better go find out what this is about. So, I asked one of my friends, his name was Jeff. He was the guy that brought the cards initially. I asked Jeff, hey, would you mind showing me what the game is about? Would you mind teaching me how to play it? Mm-hmm. And this is back in the days of Unlimited Edition. Mm-hmm. Arabian Nights was still in stores. Unlimited Edition had been out for a short period of time. Uh huh. No one had any idea about the rules at all. Wow. There was a rule book that came with the game, but I honestly think the guys. I think the guys that were like making the game at the time had no idea about <laughs> half the rules because the rules were super obtuse, and the rule book did not do a good job of explaining it to you either. Regardless of that, Jeff and I went downstairs, sat at the kitchen table and I played my first game of magic that I ultimately won mm-hmm. with a flying crawworm Huh! after Jeff had put out Gaia's liege and uh-huh. turned all of my lands into forests. Yeah. And- he finally attacked me with everything and I had Fog in my hand I cast Fog to survive and yeah. counterattacked with a crawworm. Worm that I gave flight to to win the game. Wow. So, I won my first game of Magic. I was always a very competitive person. I did varsity sports through high school and had stopped doing that after high school. So, I was always looking for a competitive outlet and I found that in the game Street Fighter. For a number of years, and cool. played it competitively. There was a an arcade in Sunnyvale in California that happened to just be, through circumstance, um, happened to be kind of the nexus of top tier play for all of Northern California, and it was one of the best places to play the game in the United States. Actually, it turned out, and that was that was borne out through numerous national tournaments and stuff that were held. So I played there and competed in the tournaments and stuff there. And so that was my competitive outlet. But as soon as Magic got a hold of me, I said to myself, this is something that I really, really want to devote myself to and master. And I was a sophomore in college at UC Santa Cruz at the time. And very quickly, all I could think about was the game and studies be damned. So I would sit there in class and I would just be designing decks on my binder. My Looking back at those binders that I had at the time, they're just filled with scrawls of writing down my collection and everything at the time. Wow, The big thing that restrained me, that reined me in though, was the fact that not only did I have no money at the time as many college students um, find the situation that lots of college students find themselves in, but also card availability, complete desert. People these days do not appreciate what it was like back then, but there were no cards to be had anywhere. The entire planet was sold out. <laughs> and there, was no, there were no stores selling singles. That was totally unheard of. There was no way to get product at all. You could not get cards. Wow. Which is kind of interesting because it cleaves quite closely to Richard Garfield's initial design vision for the game. This idea that there would be pockets of playgroups where people would have a relatively modest access to cards, just like the designers and testers of the game had. And within that play group, there might be a guy with a shivan dragon. And mm-hmm. everyone lives in fear of a shivan until he loses it in an anti-match. Huh. And some other guy has a copy of Ancestral Recall that he occasionally casts and draws three cards with. And some guy has a black lotus. By themselves in that, in that paradigm, those cards are not problem cards. Obviously, it's absurd to, to mention shivan dragon in the same sentence as Ancestral Recall <laughs> as a problem card. But for its time, shivan was completely amazing and the ultimate chase card in magic for quite a while. Anyway, um, but that situation really existed for the first year or so, I would say, where there were lots of people, the appetite was ravenous, me included. However, there was no way to get cards at all. You just couldn't get them. You couldn't find them anywhere. Every store in the entire country was sold out. And there was one exception to that, however, and I've, I've told this story to a number of people in the past. There was a store called Gamescape in Palo Alto, California, which was my hometown. And I would commute to Palo Alto on weekends periodically, and this one store in Gamescape is actually where I bought my first starter deck of Unlimited, mm-hmm. which happened to have a Royal Assassin in it. Oh wow! Which actually dictated my entire design, how I built decks and approached deck building for several months. I built hmm. mono black because I had this Royal Assassin. It was everyone told me it was the best card that existed. Yeah, or one of the best. It was there were two chase cards really. It was Shivan and Royal Assassin. Yeah, just miles above everything else right. for a long time. This store, Gamescape, for whatever reason, and what I heard through the grapevine was that one of the guys, either the owner of the store or someone who was a manager there, had a friend or a relative or something who worked for Wizards of the Coast. And because of this connection, they had access to the Unlimited Edition when every other store in the country was completely sold out. And I saw evidence to support that. I didn't see the game for sale anywhere else after you know, um, maybe a couple of weeks after I had been introduced to it. Gamescape had a supply, not a big supply, but they had Cases in the back, and every morning they would take a box of an, of the unlimited edition. They would open it up, and they would take out all the rares and all the uncommons from the booster packs and put them into a binder that they would set on the table on the on the counter. And on a first come first serve basis, as soon as the place opened up, people would line up outside, and you could walk in and flip through the binder and choose any cards you wanted to. All the uncommons in the binder were one dollar, and all rares were two dollars, no matter wow. what they were. And it amazed me too because of the, in- the integrity that the guys that were running the store had, the fact that they would still do that. They would put Shiv and Dragon out in the binder if it showed up in the box. And certainly, all the other cards that today we associate with the decadence of vintage like the Moxes and Black Lotus and Ancestor Recall and stuff, Time Walk, were all in the binder for 2 bucks. Wow. Now, the one catch was that nobody had any idea that those were actually good. Huh. You, you can imagine back in prehistoric days, someone might be rifling through diamond ore looking for- you know, looking for coal that they could right. use, right? And ignoring the fact that they were rifling through diamonds. Mm-hmm. You didn't know that you were looking at stuff that was going to be worth thousands of dollars later on. So right. you'd go flipping through the binder looking for Lord of the Pit, flipping past Ancestral Recall and Mox Jet and whatever, because you were looking for this giant creature that you thought mattered. Right. So that was my early experience. However, because of the fact that I was playing the game and building decks with my friend Matt, who also was a very smart guy very competitive like me and we were bouncing ideas off each other rather than just playing in our little inbred group at Santa Cruz, we figured out very quickly what mattered and what didn't. so We were able to target specific cards to acquire and get them off people and trade for relatively modest prices. I remember trading Icy Manipulators, that four-mana artifact which yes. is a piece of junk that's been reprinted a million times for Demonic Tutors uh-huh. because there was no restricted list at the time and I knew Demonic Tutor was insane. So, I would trade straight across this Ice Manipulator, which everybody wanted for Demonic Tutor, which is I would make an argument to the person, something effective, oh, you don't well, I want that. Why not just play with the, another copy of the other card? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, I had at one point eight or nine Demonic Tutors in my deck uh-huh. that I had gotten in trade. We were always designing decks with winning as the primary objective. It's very interesting when people talk about what is magic about, what's the goal of a game of magic. I hear this a lot, especially because EDH by its original construction is kind of fundamentally a casual friendly, casual format, that the experience itself is what people are playing the game for. The end result, winning or losing, is almost incidental. It's more about did I have a good time in this social environment, you know, hanging out with everybody. Did, was it a fun interactive game? Did everybody get to do their thing? Mm-hmm. And if you look at the cards that get banned in that format, they almost always follow that pattern. The cards that get banned are not the cards that are necessarily the most powerful. And in fact, the most powerful cards in the format by far are not banned. The cards that get banned are the cards that rein in everybody else's fun by and large. Hmm. And that sentiment really was pervasive for a long time, certainly in most of the playgroups that grew up because nothing like magic had ever existed before. When you think about what do people most of the time play games for, it's a social endeavor. You're sitting there and you're having a social, you know, you're interacting with the people at the table and you're having fun. And you're playing with five people in a game or whatever. And here comes magic and it's this 1v1 thing. And a lot of people, that didn't sit well with them at all. They didn't want to play it as a 1v1 thing. They wanted to play group games, which I totally abhorred. <laughs> and my entire design was focused around that. I'm going to f- play it as a 1v1 endeavor. We did do the, t- the 40 life thing, which mm-hmm. is very interesting. And it's, its repercussions on how I went about deck designing for years afterward completely kind of flowed from that decision. At the same time, I knew that I wanted to make winning, beating my opponent, the foremost goal. And I didn't really care how that was achieved. Mm -hmm. I played in my first tournament maybe a couple months after I was introduced to the game. I had my mono black deck, but I had figured out at that point in games against Matt that I had to splash other colors because Matt had discovered the card Karma. The white enchantment that makes you take a damage during your upkeep for every swamp you control, which felt hideously unfair to me. How could they even make that card? It's totally ridiculous. He puts out karma and I take eight a turn and just die. Mm-hmm. I started splashing white and green for disenchant and tranquility. And the very first tournament I played in, playing my mono black deck that was slightly over 60 cards, it might have been 70. And it had some janky stuff in it, but at its core, it was pretty good. And I actually won the tournament. Uh And the guy I played in the tournament in the finals, I got insanely lucky against it. I mean, I must have because he had a focus deck. And in one of the games, he ritualed out Jazam Jin against me on turn one. Mm -hmm. You know, that kind of thing. Like his deck was real Mm -hmm. for its time. But I managed to beat him because I had Royal Assassin, Mm -hmm. which held off the Jazam and made him take damage. And eventually, I got Icy Manipulator out and started just owning him and he couldn't deal with it. Wow. So, early success, approaching the game as a very competitive endeavor really lit a fire under me and I really devoted a hundred percent of my time and attention and intellect and work and everything to it. And I just played magic to the exclusion of everything else in my life. I think there is a period of time of roughly probably from mid nineteen ninety four up until the inception of the Pro Tour in nineteen ninety six and even later, I went back to I took time off from college and then went back um, in early 1996, and then went away from it again when some of our opportunities in magic arose. But I think for a roughly five-year block of time, I probably played the game 80 hours a week. Wow. Or more even. Wow. Like, it was all I did. I would dream at night, all night long about magic. Every, all of my thoughts were coalesced around the game. All, every waking and sleeping thought was in the context of turns and mana. Like, my entire brain was just coalesced around this one thing. It was like a singularity. And it made me damn good at it. <laughs> good, at, good at it to the point where I could feel things in the game. I could feel the board state. Like it, it, it had a physical presence to me. Cards themselves had a physical, tangible, kinesthetic feel to me. Like I interacted physically with the board. I was so gelled into it. That carried over into reading my opponent, watching my opponent's reactions. All sorts of things. And I mean, looking back on it, these these skills have atrophied to a a large extent. I play almost exclusively online where very little of that stuff matters. But occasionally, it rears its head when I play live games against Mm -hmm. people. I have some habits, some play habits that I became very deeply ingrained back in the day. For example, if you watch me play physically, I lay my cards out on the table in a grid. Mm-hmm. And the only other player I know who does that is Pat Chapin. Oh, interesting. If you look at video of Pat Chapin playing, he does exactly the same thing. He lays all of his cards out in a grid on the table too. Interesting. And Pat and I had a very interesting relationship. We met when he was just a junior player playing at his first Pro Tour, which was Pro Tour Dallas in 1996. And I actually commentated his matches in the top eight and I was scathing in my criticism. <laughs> Whether or not, I, I haven't seen the footage, so I don't know if it was justified, but I was a total ass to him. And I think I was kind of just an a- in general back then in terms of how I assessed other people's play and didn't pull any punches about it at all. And I think that's actually something that's lacking a little bit from modern commentary. I think that, I think that first of all, the players are better. Objectively, mm-hmm. players are definitely better, more technically sound. That said, I feel like the commentators try to spin things a little bit too much hmm. in a positive light. That was not my style at all. Like I was, and part of that was that I wanted to keep it real. And I think part of that was just arrogance. Also, I think that I felt like I was better and that I should have been playing in the top eight. Anyway, I commented on Pat's match and said, talk lots of about his, how he played his, his games. And after his game was over, he was so incensed by this. Apparently people had come and told him like, Oh my God, why is saying so much match? He came into the broadcast booth and, and demanded to know like, what the hell man, what's going on? But he and I were, Rivals and adversaries after that. We, we would play type one on the side at pro events where we would both be attending and we would play hours of type one, just game after game with a huge audience of people watching. Uh huh. Just slinging cards the whole time. And I don't know whether he adopted it from watching me play because I did that originally because of the card chaos orb. Uh huh. Yes. Laying my cards out in a grid, but it had way, way more utility beyond that mm-hmm. because honestly, a broad, swath of cards that I am like in tune with, like a, <laughs> like, a, like a Svengali puppet master, where I can feel every card on the board. Yeah. I could describe to you, again, in like a synesthesia way, the texture of every card that I had in play Uh huh. with my eyes closed. I could totally relate to my board position and I would have my things out totally haphazard. I'd have lands and creatures and everything just scattered all over the board. And it made my board much more difficult to read and people would just miss stuff. Interesting. I mean, that stuff would really happen. People would just completely ignore the fact that I had a creature just sitting over here surrounded by three lands and a scepter. Huh. You know, that kind of stuff. Because it's hard to it's hard to really take in a much larger board space. So I right. learned to play that way. I was so I was just super, super competitive, getting back to your original question, like just playing the game a hundred percent of my time. Like it was just all I could think about, all I could dream about, all I could write about, all I could talk about. Endlessly, And then the Pro Tour came along in 1996, mm-hmm. and suddenly there was this amazing, magical outlet for something to really direct all my skills at. Because prior to that, uh, as someone who was trying to eke out a very modest living from a combination of playing in tournaments for their modest prizes, doing a lot of trading and selling of cards to support the lifestyle. And also uh, we played for anti a lot back then. Wow. And not anti in the traditional sense, not mm-hmm. anti is the way that Richard Garfield envisioned it, which was take a random card out of your deck mm-hmm. and wager that, which is frankly insane. <laughs> and a I random. Be, yeah, and I, and I can't My believe it.
0: planes versus your black lotus. <laughs>
1: exactly, and I think that any reasonable person, clearly, I mean, when they when they tested the game, right, they were playing with slips of paper. Mm-hmm. You know, like, I, I mean, I've playtested numerous games with Richard. I've seen his playtesting process. I mean, nowadays he just uses magic cards as proxies. <laughs> it's magic cards with like stuff written on them. I hope so. <laughs> um, yeah, of course. I mean, it makes He's got infinite, and he has, he has uh, lots of other tools and stuff. But that's how they play tested magic. I'm sure you've probably seen the mockups of original mm-hmm. magic cards. And obviously, the idea of anting a card that says black lotus on it in the context of a casual game of testing. You don't care, right? Right. But when it's a real physical card that you know has value, you're not going to do it. And so, every, and, and then not only that, but if you happen to have one Royal Assassin or Shivan Dragon as the all star of your deck and you ante it and lose it, not only, well, I mean, you could lose it permanently, but also you don't even have access to it for that game, which could totally destroy your ability to win. That's right. So, everyone naturally concluded anti is insane. However, we wanted to play for stakes. And if you were someone who was making a living from the game, it was actually a way to support your lifestyle. You could earn a living, albeit a very modest one, but you could earn a living by wagering cards whenever you sat down to play a game. So, that was a very common thing. You would sit down, play a a best of three game or match against somebody, and you would both wager a card either on every single game or on the outcome of the match. And the winner would collect the card. And the antis would be substantial. I have I have four beta tundras in my collection to this day that I won in an anti-match that lasted about an hour. Wow. Where I won four beta tundras off one person. Wow. And I have them to this day. Yeah, that was the most expensive anti-match in the history of the world. <laughs> it's like, you know, a $12,000 anti-match or something in an hour. At the time, they were only worth 10 bucks. But Wow. Well, then that's really interesting, Brian. You're playing a
0: lot of EDH and of course, I will put uh, links in the show notes at kitchentablemagic.org for your YouTube channel. Um, I'm curious, do you play standard? Are you going to be playing any competitive standard
1: these days? It's really, really unlikely. i've I've entertained the thought off and on over the years about making a, attempting a return at some point. Obviously, I'm much older. Now. I'm forty one now, and when I was playing professionally, I was twenty one, so it was twenty years ago, when I started to play professionally. Many things in life get in the way. And at the same time, there are numerous players from my era, Pat Chapin comes to mind. Although he's a little bit younger than me, um, Finkel and some other people who have, and William Jensen, some other guys that were of my era mm-hmm. who are still, nearly all of them are on, are in the Hall of Fame. So, they have a much bigger incentive to attend tournaments. And I think one of the biggest regrets for me personally is the fact that I never, ever got Hall of Fame eligibility. Mm. I played from 96 really through 99. I played in one tournament in 2001, but it was just a team tournament. Mm-hmm but my real active period was those three years. And I actually had quite good results relative to average finish. I had two top eights. I had Mm -hmm. a top 16 and a couple of top 32s, which given the relatively short span that I played was pretty good. And if you had extrapolated that out, if I had managed to continue that sort of success up to the present, then I'd have like 12 pro tour top eights or something at this Mm -hmm. point, provided that it continued. Right. That said, the way that... Pro tour points were accumulated back then. The fact that there were virtually no Grand Prix's, they weren't introduced till later. Mm -hmm. So your opportunities to earn pro tour points only came from the pro events themselves. And it was possible if you had one slow year, you know, if you scrubbed out of a couple of tournaments and didn't even cash, not only would you fall off the gravy chain, you didn't get any pro points Mm -hmm. and you had no way to support the lifestyle either. There was no players club, there was no free incentives, there was no air travel, none of that stuff existed. Wow. So, it was really, really hard to support the lifestyle. It was really hard to be a pro magic player and to take it seriously and devote all of your time and energy to it, especially when you had a concerned grandfather calling you up every month wondering what you're doing with your life. Which is <laughs> something that happened to me a lot. So, with that in mind, entertaining the idea of a comeback, there are a few things involved there. First of all, the fire. Mm-hmm. The sort of driving need to prove myself as a person, as a player, to sort of vindicate all the time and energy I had devoted to this activity, not only to myself, but to my family and friends, because I had done this to the exclusion of so many other, other things in my life. It became increasingly hard to justify all that time and expense. And I think that I talked earlier about how I was a d- you know, an ass and arrogant and so on about my magic playing. That aspect, that that component of my personality is mollified over the years. Like I'm much more mellow. And I can feel when I play against people now, like I just I want to win, but I don't want to like tear their throat out. Like mm-hmm. it's I feel empathy for my opponents, that kind of thing. I, I remember we were talking earlier about Blood Moon and I remember this this match that I played against. The first time I played against Blood Moon in a tournament. Um, it was at a huge, huge type one tournament in the Bay Area. And I was playing the deck. In fact, one of the very first original published iterations of it that was very tuned with 60 cards. No junk, two Sarah Angels, two Motes and so on. It was a really, really good tune version that had not really been published yet. And it was right after The Dark had come out. It was maybe a month after The Dark had come out. I was totally unprepared to deal with Bloodman. I didn't have any basic land in my deck at all, zero. And I just plowed through the tournament as I expected. I get to the finals and it was a big tournament. It was a 512 person tournament. So it was wow. two days of 256 person flights, which was a tournament of that size at that time was unheard of. Wow. Yeah, huge, huge magic event. I get to the finals and I'm playing against this kid and the kid I know because I've been scouting him is playing mono red with four main deck blood moon. Wow. Which was a brilliant metagame call because everyone was playing dual lands and the dark had just come out and I think nobody even thought that anybody would have the gall to run four blood moons. Well, I hated this kid. I hated him. And we're sitting down at the table before a match begins. And I'm giving him the death stare. I'm just staring at him across the table, fuming, Uh literally fuming. Like I was feeling it. You know, my heart's going fast and my temple is thumping. I was enraged at this kid. Wow. And he's sort of looking at me and fidgeting in his chair. And he finally looks at me and he goes, did I do something bad to you in a past life or something? (laughs) And I said, you play with Blood Moon. (laughs) I hate people who play with Blood Moon. And I said it completely sincere. Like, you know, (laughs) with ice in my voice, dripping with malice. And totally... Li- I mean, that's really how I felt. And I crushed him, at least in the match. We played and I beat him two wow. out of three. He, uh, he beat me with Blood Moon in the second game. First game, I mind twisted him early and never looked back. And then the third game, I lotused out Moat on turn one. And that was the entire game. He just he had no way to deal with it. Wow. So, I beat, the, I beat the Blood Moon kid. But that was the way that I... <laughs> felt about the game back then. That was my competitive spirit. And looking back on that, I mean, I can't believe that I acted that way. I mean, it's it's shameful, honestly. But I just I had no empathy for my opponents at all. And I think that a component, a facet of really playing a game like Magic at the very highest level, you cannot feel empathy towards your opponents. You have to want to win. That has to be the foremost drive. And if you lose that, if that's lacking, it's going to affect your play in one way or another. Either the preparation or the execution or how you socialize and how you share information, whatever. And because I'm not the same person that I was 15, 20 years ago, I I don't know if I have that same fire and drive. But my one regret is because I only played on the pro tour for those three and a half years or whatever, I think I only have about 75 pro points, lifetime pro points. Nowadays, with the way that they allocate them and the existence of Grand Prix, it would be trivial to get over 100. 100 pro points is nothing now. But at the time, 75 was a lot. That came from, again, two pro tour top eights, and a top sixteen and a couple of top thirty twos, and a number of top sixty four finishes as well, like all in two and a half years. Mm-hmm. When they announced the Hall of Fame, the cutoff was at one hundred pro player points. Mm-hmm. And I didn't have enough. Hmm. And that bugged the shit <laughs> out of me for a long time. I mean I felt it felt really unjust, honestly, because when it was announced, I was still relevant mm-hmm. as a player. I mean, this was ages ago now, but I was still relevant as a player and it felt like a big slight to me. Like I had played in the first two Duelist invitationals, which were these, uh, they don't do it anymore. It's kind of like what Worlds is now. Right. But originally they had this exclusive thing. I think it was 16 players were invited. That's right. Yeah. Under various criteria. I mean, it was obviously a lot of cronyism going on in that, but... If you got invited to that, you were the best in the world, undoubtedly. And I I was invited to and played in the first couple of those tournaments. When the Hall of Fame was announced, I was just thinking like, come on, give me a break, right? I mean, I had such a big influence over the game. I was one of the early commentators for it. I did commentary on ESPN. You know, I had these great finishes like, I should be eligible. This is ridiculous. Why do I need 100 points? For whatever reason, I did not have the drive to go and continue to grind through the qualifier system and stuff to get those last 25 points to get eligible. And obviously, the ship is long, long, long since sailed. Mm-hmm. I mean, if Pakula didn't get into the Hall of Fame, I have zero chance oh, ever. No. I mean, that's the biggest oversight by far as far as the Hall of Fame is concerned. It is ridiculous. They should just do an honorary induction. You know how you, they give people like honorary Oscars and stuff? Mm-hmm. On it? Pakula should be in the Hall of Fame. That's absurd. Mm-hmm. But because he has everything that you would need in addition to the pro player points. I mean, I guess he missed the cutoff at some point now that it's been moved upward. He doesn't have the points to be eligible. It is criminal that he wasn't inducted though hmm. before that because of his impact on the game was I mean, Tremendous. almost second to none. Yeah. I mean, he was... Pakula was one of the people that absolutely defined pro tour magic for the first like four or five years. I mean, he was... He was the guy. He was like, you go to the tournaments and he was the center of attention. And he was one of the commentators. He and I did commentary together. He was the play-by-play guy and I did color. I mean, vice versa. I was play-by-play and he did color. And he's hilariously funny and totally insightful, just brilliant. It's ridiculous. Anyway, so the fact that Pakula is not in the Hall of Fame gives me a little bit of mental solace about the fact that I, because he would have to be inducted before me. Hmm. Given the fact that unless you follow vintage and stuff and follow the old school magic, my name is long forgotten. But it does get recognized pretty often when I play EDH online because there's a big overlap between fans of that format and people who uh, were around or following the game 20 years ago.
0: But this is very interesting, Brian. You know, we've covered quite an amount of topics. We've talked about the fundamentals of deck theory, right? Like how to win. And then we talked about how that's uh, evolved into what creatures mean and what spells mean. And then you know, we talked a little bit about EDH and things like that. Brian, I do want to ask you, I think you're going to be a very good candidate to ask this question to. What advice would you give to players aspiring to get onto the Pro Tour? Like what they can do to
1: get better? The fundamental truth of it, just like with any endeavor, is throw all of your time and all of your energy at it. There is no substitute really in anything for just practice. You can theorycraft all you want. You can read all you want. When it comes right down to it, you have to just devote the time. Other than that, though, I would say that the best skill you can probably have as a player is the capacity to be self-critical. And I know that I held myself back as a player and made a lot of mistakes in terms of deck choices in particular that I brought to tournaments because of my inability at the time to be self-critical and the ability, inability to kind of recognize that I might be wrong with my instincts about a particular format. Anecdotally, the one that comes to mind to me the most was the tournament that was held in um, – it was a tournament that was won by Dave Price on the Queen Mary. In Long Beach, I think it was Pro Tour LA number, I want to say three. Mm-hmm. Leading up to that tournament, I was actually out of school at that point, and I was living in an apartment and had all of my time to devote every day to playtesting. And to facilitate that, um, my girlfriend at the time and I invited uh, a player named Ule Rade. I don't know if you've heard of Ule. Mm-mm. He's the picture on the um, Sylvan Safekeeper. You know the creature, the Sylvan Safekeeper, the one green mana elf. Oh, that allows you to sacrifice a forest. Oh, he's
0: he is the model for he so. is the Sylvan
1: Safekeeper. Oh, wow. Ule won the first pro the first oh. Duelist Invitational.
0: Oh, I get it now. Okay, so he's not in the model. Hong he, Kong. He, oh, I get it. I
1: get it. Yeah, beating Mike Long in the finals. Uh-huh. So he's inaugurated forever on this Sylvan Safekeeper. So Ule was in his day was the badass of the time, and he's in the Hall of Fame. He was one of the first inductees, and he was a friend of mine. Totally amazing guy. Hilarious. This little tiny Swedish guy with long hair at the time. And I invited Ule to come and stay with me to prepare for the Tempest Pro Tour. So Ule came and we hung out and tested magic for this tournament for roughly three weeks. It became very apparent early on in the playtesting that cursed Scroll, this totally innocuous artifact. In fact, the card is so bad by modern standards that I just cut it from my cube after stubbornly keeping it in there for a year and a half of watching it getting picked 15th. I finally took it out. But in its day, Curse Scroll was the most defining. It was like the Umezawa's jite of its era. Mm-hmm, that's right. And Uli and I playtested hundreds of hours of Tempest constructed. And most of the time, our, our go-to test deck was a mono red deck that featured four copies of Curse Scroll and all the other usual suspects, including Fire Slinger and Kenyon Wildcat and Mog Fanatic and Lightning Blast and various other red cards that we took in and out of the deck. But the the cornerstone of the deck and every aggressive deck in that format was curse scroll. I was convinced that I was not going to play a god on a red deck in this tournament because I didn't play mono red. I was a control deck player. And so, for weeks I built deck after deck after deck trying to find a solution to a deck that used curse scroll. My own lack of self-reflection, my inability to pay more attention to the results of what was happening in game after game after game of testing against Uli. And it got to the point where he would not cast the Cursed Scrolls in his hand because I would get so pissed about him casting them. Like I'd be grambling, trying my best to keep my grasp on the game to keep the situation from, from getting out of control using all sorts of stuff like staunch defenders and bottle gnomes and Tradewind Rider and all these things that were designed to kind of deal with the threat that the mono red deck presented. And none of them were consistent answers to it. And even if I managed to Scrabble my way to keeping the board state under control, there'd be two cursed scrolls sitting in play, dealing four damage a turn to me, and I would just die to them no matter what I did. And it was so infuriating and frustrating trying to deal with this. And I kept trying to build deck after deck to get around this problem. What obviously I should have done was, which is what Dave's team, including Chris Pacula, ultimately realized that the best deck was definitely the red deck. So rather than trying to find a solution to the deck that everyone was going to obviously use, why not design a red deck that beats all the other red decks? Hmm. And so they made a couple of breakthroughs, including using Giant Strength, this janky enchantment that was originally from Legends that gives plus two, plus two to a creature for two red. And Wrathy Dragon, this... I think it's a 5-5 five, five for 4 mana where you have to sacrifice 2 lands when it comes into play. Very bad cards in their own right, but in that environment, in a mono-red environment, they gave the mono-red decks this extra edge against other red decks. That's what they developed because they were able to be self-critical about it and realize that there was no deck that was better than mono-red. I couldn't make that mental jump. I was too attached to the idea that I could figure this format out. I could get a control deck to work, despite the fact that the tools just weren't there, hmm. especially because the mana base was so dreadful. The dual lands at the time were depletion lands. Yeah. So, you could tap them for colorless mana, but if you tap them for blue or black or white, they would stay tapped for a turn. I mean, that's suicidal. You tap out to like cast a double blue spell against the mono red deck and you can't cast anything the next turn. You yeah. can't counterspell or capsize or do anything important because your stupid lands are tapped. And meanwhile, their mono red mountains don't care at all. Mm-hmm. I wound up doing very poor. I think I just squeaked into the second day. And I think the cutoff went beyond the top 64. I think they had just changed it so that you just needed a certain record. I barely made it a second day. It was super miserable first day. Second day was just more misery of just getting crushed by the the same decks that I had been testing against that all the evidence clearly showed me were way better than what I was using. And then sure enough, Dave Price wins the finals with a mono red deck, proving all of our playtesting exactly right. Huh. And I just couldn't get past it. And I made the same mistake in a bunch of other constructed tournaments too on the Pro Tour where I just I just had this idea in my head like I have to play this particular, I have to play a control deck because control decks allow me to play better. They allow me to outplay my opponent. That's what all of my prehistory in Magic had taught me, that the better player plays the control deck. And that's what allows you to exert your will better on your opponent and outplay them. And it was just flat out wrong. Hmm. So, my advice, the thesis of this long tale, is fundamentally play what the evidence shows is best. Pay attention to your playtesting. Don't have any personal investment in it. Playtest all the archetypes. Don't make excuses for the results. If you lose game after game against your opponent, it's not because they're getting lucky. You're losing game after game because their deck is better than yours. Understand that and play the deck that's ultimately best as borne out by the evidence.
0: Brian, we've talked about some really interesting things and like all of our guests, I have some rapid fire questions for you. All
1: right, bring it on. Okay.
0: Okay. Brian, rapid fire question number one. Of the five colors of magic, white, blue, black, red, and green, what is your favorite color and why? Blue for sure. (laughs) Okay.
1: And because blue is the color that draws cards and counterspells things. And those are the two things that I think are most important in magic. Okay. Very fair. As far as a personality is concerned, if I were to be uh, ascribed to a particular guild, I am blue-black. Ah,
0: okay. And on why blue-black?
1: Well, going back to uh, Mark Rosewater's podcast on this subject, um, as far as colored identity goes, I think that I definitely personally embody the most of those two colors. Blue's pursuit of knowledge, logical and reasonable, rational thinking, sort of calculated approach to things, as well as the compulsion. This is obviously a component of black also, but to sort of bend the world to your will. I think my the black part of my personas were more on display when I was a younger, more ambitious magic player. I think it's receded a little bit more into the background, but I definitely still have those components to my personality as well. Like I feel that, that malice that I described when I played against that kid with blood moon, (laughs) I still feel that from time to time when I'm sitting down to play a game online and my opponent plays like a soul ring or a mana crypt against me on turn one and I'm like mad at him. <laughs> so, the black component of me rears its head a little bit, I think. And and also just the idea, one of black's primary thrusts as a color is the idea of sacrificing short-term resources for long-term gain. And that's kind of how I've approached a lot of things in my life, not just in magic.
0: Very good. Brian, question number two, if you could change something about Magic the Gathering, what
1: would it be? Well, that's a hard question. Um, I would want... Better counterspells and better removal, I think. Just to give you a quick anecdotal example, I know this is rapid fire, but one of the criteria for attending the Duelist Invitational was submitting a card. You had to come equipped with a, a card that you designed in advance and you got to make that card if you wound up winning. And while most people submitted creatures, and I think nearly all the cards that have been made from the Duelist Invitational have been creatures with a couple of exceptions, the card that I submitted was a card that I called Evening the Odds, and it was a white instant, exactly like Swords to Plowshares, with the limitation on it that you could only play evening the odds if your opponent controlled more creatures than you. Oh. I I think that it was either that version or the version was you could only cast it if you controlled no creatures. Hmm. That was the criteria. So, it was a Swords to Plowshares, but it was a Swords to Plowshares that only went in decks that I played. (laughs) (laughs) That's pretty awesome. So, uh, I think that if I could change magic, I think that I would stop power creeping creatures quite so much and make... Control cards better, better counter spells, better theft cards, better swords. Oh, and I would definitely print a enemy dual land cycle that was fetchable, <laughs> so that I could put another tropical island in my Edric deck and another steam vents in my Nin the Pain Artist deck.
0: Sweet. Or they could just errata a whole bunch of lands to add basic oh, types onto make them, them, basic right? land types. That would solve it too. Yes. <laughs> sweet. Sweet. Brian, question number three. If you could give something to every Magic player, what would it be?
1: I think that I would give them an old Type 1 deck to play for a little while. It would really give people a sense of the game's history. I think a lot of people read about the old cards and they can appreciate them for what they are as artifacts, but they are relics. I should say artifacts is not necessarily the right word because it's a type of Magic card, but as relics of the past and even though they can appreciate what they are, I think it's very hard for a modern player to evaluate an old card in that environment, in the environment that it once shown. Like, for example, I, I, I've given old school magic deck lists to a number of people, including um, my, my friend Chris, the CEO of, of my company. After the tournament, he was – because when I sent him the initial deck list, there were cards in the sideboard and stuff that I think that he didn't fully appreciate. Although – and I actually sent it to uh, another person at the company that was also playing in the tournament. And a card like Mana Short, for example, you just see that card and you don't really appreciate how good it is because everybody's played in a format where Force of Will is everywhere. And there's lots of great creature mana and stuff. So Mana Short doesn't seem to make any sense. But when you play with it in that environment, suddenly it does make sense. And there's lots of cards that are like that. Disrupting Scepter is another example. You just... You look at Disrupting Scepter and you're like, how could this have ever been a card that people would want to put in a deck? It's so slow and bad. But you play with it in that format and suddenly you understand. So, I think that giving people an old deck to try out for a while, obviously you wouldn't want them to keep it because then everybody would have (laughs) a set of moxes and so on, which would kind of destroy the economy for those. But they would have an opportunity to play with that deck and feel what it was like to play with those cards in their native environment, which I think would be very enlightening.
0: Very interesting. Brian, question number four. What do you see in the future of
1: Magic the Gathering? I see the game just continuing to grow. I mean, I think that one figure that really struck me that I heard about recently was the fact that the player base is now not 50-50, but comprised over 40% of female players. Oh, really? Which is astonishing to me, uh, given the fact that my entire play experience of the game, up to the point when I stopped playing it as a competitive tournament endeavor, was that it was almost 100% male. There were about maybe one or two, maybe three at a time female pro players. But even on, an, on a casual level at, at uh, pre-releases and at tournaments and stuff, it was almost 100% male. And I, I credit it probably to the the fact that it's available on so many different platforms now, that there are so many different ways to play Magic. But they've done an obviously a masterful job of, of expanding the reach of the game to include both sexes. And I think that that's phenomenal in terms of just creating... Growing the brand and removing a lot of the social stigma that surrounds it. You know, magic is still, still unfortunately likened a lot to Dungeons and Dragons and so on and, and carries a lot of that same stigma that's associated with fantasy type gaming in general. The fact that it has expanded its base so much, the sets are designed so well for both constructed and limited play. I mean, I guess the future that I see for it is that I, I've been playing magic for 20, 22 years now, almost 23 years and I expect to be playing it 22 years from now and still loving it as much as when I first was introduced to the game, which is really how it genuinely feels. It's never, ever gotten stale. It always still just feels, every game feels fresh and fun.
0: And last, Brian, do you have any asks or requests of the listening audience? Like anything you want them to uh, do, think about or consider or where they can find you on social media?
1: Yeah. Well, I uh, I mentioned it earlier in the podcast a little bit, but I... um. For the last maybe two and a half years, I've been producing a uh, personal YouTube channel that's devoted to playing high level, hardcore, cutthroat, one versus one EDH or commander format online. And I, it's all through the Magic Online client. And I do commentary for the games after I've played them, provided that they're games that were noteworthy. A big majority of the games, uh, they're not worth recording because, you know, someone concedes on turn two to a strip mine or something like that. But, There are a handful of games that are really fun to watch, and I try my best to talk through my thought process, break down particular plays about why I'm doing something, and uh, obviously you can see the outcome for it, and I'll pause at certain times and allow the the viewer to go and see if they would have made the same decision as me, especially when it comes to something like a tutor. But I have over 300 videos now, actually, to watch. So if you are a fan of EDH, whatever format you like to play it in, either one versus one, casual, hardcore, whatever, there are videos there that you may enjoy. And to view them, I think all you have to do is just go to YouTube and type in my name, B-R-I-A-N, last name, W-E-I-S-S-M-A-N, so Brian Weissman. If you search there, you should be able to find the channel pretty easily.
0: Yeah. And I've been looking at some of those uh, videos. They are incredibly entertaining. I've learned a lot. I mean, there's a lot of different interactions and they're very well commentated. So, oh, thank I, you. yeah, they really are. And so, I really uh, encourage all the listeners to check it out because it's uh, very enlightening. It's very refreshing content. Brian, do you have any uh, parting words for our listening audience?
1: Other, I guess just, uh, you know, thank you for listening to my long-winded stories. I really enjoyed talking about them. I mean, you can probably... Tell that I enjoy sharing the stories. Um, yeah, I mean, I've had, I've had as long a career and involvement in this amazing game as just about anyone could have. And I, kind of, I feel very lucky that I've been able to experience kind of the entire arc of what Magic has to offer. If you're playing Magic, you are playing the best game on earth, unequivocally. Tell that to everyone and never stop playing.
0: I hope you enjoyed my interview with Brian Weissman, Brian's been playing a lot of EDH on Magic Online, and he posts his video with commentary on his YouTube channel. Brian also has a massive collection of beta power, so if you want to see a handful of black-bordered moxen, head on over to kitchentablemagic.org. I'll have photos and links in the show notes. This episode of Kitchen Table Magic was brought to you by Paragon City Games. The Kitchen Table Magic podcast has been all about the origins of the game and members of the community. And as a community, we've come a long way since the game first started. Apart from the kitchen table, the only other places in your local community to play Magic are at local game stores. And that's why places like Paragon City Games is so important for our community. At Paragon City Games, you'll find a spacious and clean showroom with lots of elbow room for Magic events. You'll find thoughtful accessories like die-hard metal dice and handcrafted wooden boxes. You'll find a huge supply of legacy, modern, and standard staples, sealed product, and tabletop games. It's places like Paragon City Games that allow local communities to gather in. And if you can't make it there in person, please be sure to watch their weekly stream at twitch.tv slash Paragon City Games. Remember to spread the love with a like on Facebook and a follow on Twitter for Paragon City Games. They also have great online reviews and that shows their commitment to excellent customer service for their player community. Thanks everyone for listening to this week's show. I want to take this moment to thank my newest Patreon supporter, Mark. Mark, thank you so much for becoming a $6 supporter of Kitchen Table Magic. A foil rusted relic signed by Marshall Sutcliffe is in the mail. I literally ran down the street and chased down one of those USPS mail vans and handed it over myself. Listeners, if you would also like to support the show, head on over to patreon.com slash kitchen table magic and become a supporter. For just a few bucks a month, you'll get access to extra audio content, behind the scenes show notes and special gifts from my interviews. I want to thank all of my Patreon supporters, Brian, James, Marcus, Alex, Trevor, Caitlin and Mark for your generous support. Thank you so much. You are all so awesome. Thanks to everyone tuning into this week's show. I'm always here to connect with you and answer your questions. Email me, sam at kitchentablemagic.org. Like the show on Facebook at facebook.com slash podcast. Follow me on Twitter at ktmpodcast. Subscribe to the show on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, and mtgcast.com. Coming up in the next episode of Kitchen Table Magic, You've really made an impact, and I'm I'm really happy that you're here. Finally, <laughs> for for uh, l- l- I should thank both of us. I'm not even gonna thank myself. <laughs> I should thank both of us. Thank you so much, Sam, for finally having me here for this interview <laughs> at Kitchen or Org. org <laughs> com gov. It was a long time coming. Follow me on Twitter. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. I'm hanging out with Frank Stanley, event coordinator and judge at Mock's Boarding House for a special after hours episode of Kitchen Table Magic. Frank shares about what community means to him and gives shout outs to some very special people that have made a real difference in Frank's life. I'm still recovering from our interview and I'll eventually get around to all the post-production. Join me and Frank Stanley, who sometimes plays magic, is bigly awesome, loved by all, bleh, all on the next episode of Kitchen Table Magic.